All right, well, if you haven't already, take your Bibles and let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We will be finishing this glorious chapter this morning <clears throat> as we look at verses 50 through 58, the last eight, well, I guess nine, nine verses in this chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 50. Paul here concludes this chapter by saying, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So there you have it, the end of 1 Corinthians 15. So here we are, the end of chapter 15, this great chapter. Um, I forget, how many lessons do we do in this one? One, two, three, four, five. This is the sixth one, I think. So I love this chapter. I love 1 Corinthians 15. It is one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. And here you've got this end, which has this sort of crescendo. and almost ends in a lot of ways, like Romans 8, with, with this great victory talk about how death is swallowed up in victory, how death has lost its sting, and how we have the victory in Christ. But again, this is the conclusion, right? And leading up to it, uh, Paul has been talking about the resurrection. That has been the center point. That has been the focal point of this chapter. As Paul, in all throughout his letter to the Corinthian church, he has been either addressing problems or answering questions that they've had. And they had some questions on the resurrection. Those questions you could see in verse 12 and in verse 35, they, they, first of all, the first problem that some of them there taught was that the dead do not rise. They were willing to grant that Christ rose from the dead, but they would say that the rest of us, there's no resurrection from the dead. And then the second question, maybe pulling out of the first, that could be a response to the first question, or maybe it was just another question that they had, was if the dead are, if the dead are raised, in what body are they raised? So Paul addresses both of these, and we've looked at both of these. He shows the, the absurdity of the position that the dead do not rise. And he shows that absurdity by showing the connection, the necessary vital connection between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our resurrection. And then he addresses the issue about with what kind of body do they raise up with by showing how within our normal mortal bodies, if you will, contains the seed 
of what the resurrection body will be. The body is planted in, into the ground, and when it is raised, it is raised incorruptible, it is raised powerful, it is raised glorious, and it is raised spiritual. Not like immaterial spiritual, but in a way that is fit for the age to come. It is fit for the new creation. And he grounds all of this, as we saw way back in the beginning, in the first 11 verses, by grounding it in the historical fact of the resurrection of Christ. Because Christ has been raised, all of these things will come to pass. His resurrection is the promise of things to come. It is the guarantee of things to come. So, as we look now at this passage here this morning, verses 50 through 58, Paul concludes by wrapping all this up in the bow or with the bow of our final victory in Christ. Our final victory in Christ. And the point of this passage this morning is simply this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is our ultimate victory over sin and death. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is our ultimate victory over sin and death. So you've got four points there on your outline. And the first one in verse 50 is an incontrovertible truth. An incontrovertible truth. As Paul there says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. So after addressing the two questions that the Corinthian church had regarding the resurrection, Paul concludes this chapter on the resurrection by giving them a truth a truth that cannot be broken. And that truth is this, that flesh and blood cannot, cannot, and everyone said, cannot (laughs) inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It is unable. It is unable. You've got, in the Greek, you've got the word dunamis, which is, the word for ability, and it's negated. You are not able. You cannot do it. It's not you may not do it. It's not you should not do it. It is you cannot do it. It is impossible for flesh and blood to inherit the kingdom of God. And he, he just says it a different way in the rest of the verse. Corruption cannot inherit in corruption. I always like to look at other English translations to see how they, you know, usually they they all are within a word of one another, but sometimes you get a translation that kind of fleshes this idea out a little bit more. And uh, this one, the New Living Translation, which is, it's not a paraphrase, it's, it's, it uses a a more thought-for-thought try, uh, uh, form of translation into English. And they, I think they capture the idea well here, verse 50, uh, the New Living Translation says, Our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. Okay, the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of God is an eternal kingdom. And our current flesh and blood bodies are not fit for that kingdom. Right? They're just not fit for that kingdom. If you translated us into the kingdom of God, we would die. We would just eventually die out. And that's the death. There is no death in the kingdom of God. So the resurrection, then Paul is really arguing here, the resurrection of our bodies is not just something that comes out of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it is necessary in order for us to enter the kingdom of God. We have 
to be resurrected. Our bodies have to be transformed. Our flesh and blood bodies have to put on incorruption. We have to prepare our earthly bodies for a spiritual kingdom. Again, remember what we saw last time, how Adam, the first man, was described as what? He was described as a man of dust, right? Genesis 2-7, God forms the dust of the earth into a body, and then what does he do? He breathes into it the breath of life, and it is said that Adam became a living being. But then Jesus, who is the second Adam, or the last Adam, is said to be a life-giving spirit. As in his resurrection form, he is not only a living being, he is one who gives life to us. He gives life to us. He is a life-giving spirit. So all of those references you see in the beginning of the New Testament when John the Baptist is out there, and John the Baptist, he proclaims the coming of the kingdom, and Jesus comes onto the scene, and he proclaims the coming of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. They are talking about this spiritual kingdom. That's why the apostles, in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus is about to be ascended into heaven, are confused. They ask Jesus, after his resurrection, is it time now that you're going to restore the kingdom? And Jesus says, no, not yet. Not yet. It is not now time to restore the kingdom, but, you know, wait, and you will receive power, and you will be engaged in my kingdom-building work. So it is not an earthly kingdom, it is a spiritual kingdom, and we need to be made spiritual. We cannot enter the kingdom of God in our present state. So what begins with new birth, right? The new birth kind of takes our dead spirits and makes them alive in Christ, right? Uh, That's why John says the Nicodemus, or Jesus says the Nicodemus in John chapter 3, unless you are born again, you cannot, same word, cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again. And what begins with new birth, the, the... the sort of the quickening of our spirits, to use the old King James language, we are quickened, we are made alive again, we're still alive though in, in an unredeemed flesh. Our bodies have to be converted as well. You can flip over to 2 Corinthians 5, I may reference this a few times. 2 Corinthians 5. These are passages, too, that you know, I've, I've used a couple times at funerals, but uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul here, he's mainly kind of talking about how he is you know, sort of uh, suffering for the sake of the gospel. And he talks about how the, the treasure of the gospel is contained in this kind of clay pot that he considers himself to be. And he continues in this after saying, you know, that at the end of chapter 4, where he says, look, we don't lose heart. We're not worried about what goes on. We don't worry about, you know, he says in verse 17 of chapter 4, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far exceeding an eternal weight of glory. So he's He's basically saying, look, you know, the, what I'm suffering in this life is nothing compared to the glory that I will have 
at the end of the age. And then he goes on in chapter 5, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, our bodies, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Verse 2, For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. So, you know, again, borrowing language he uses in Romans 8, we are groaning, we are, we are um, spirit-born creatures in these decaying earthly tents, so he groans, we groan for our spiritual bodies. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent, our earthly bodies, groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, in other words, not because we want to be floating spirits, disembodied spirits, but we want to be further clothed. We want that, that spiritual body, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. So Paul there is talking about the resurrection body and how we groan longing for it because of how this body is wasting away. And in, in Paul's case, it's wasting away even more because he is suffering physical persecution for his uh, ministry in the gospel. So Paul here back in 1 Corinthians 15 is saying the kingdom of God will not allow us to enter it in these bodies. Therefore, it must be changed. And that word there, interesting word that he uses there in verse 50, for inherit, it, in, uh, it's, the word itself is it's, it's not interesting. It's how it's used in the Old Testament is what is interesting. And how it's used in the Old Testament, it is used in Numbers in various other places, but it's used in the book of Numbers to talk about the inheritance of the land, how the land was allotted out to each of the tribes. God had promised the promised land, right? That's why it's called the promised land, because he promised it. And it was allotted, each tribe received a portion. And the word for inherit there is, in a sense, to receive by lot. And, and uh, so the land was given to them. It was, they, were, they received it by lot. They received it as an inheritance. It was something that God had promised to the, to the, to the Jews of old. He promised it all the way back to Abraham. I will give this land, the land that you're in, I will give this to your descendants. And Abraham's like, what descendants? I don't have any descendants. And the story goes on from there. Right? Then that promise is passed on to Isaac, and that promise is passed on to Jacob, and it's passed on to his 12 sons. And his 12 sons then become sort of the forefathers of the people who will eventually inherit the land that God promised to them. Similarly, this promise of a resurrection body is an inheritance. It is given to us, promised by God. So God must transform our perishable, mortal, decaying bodies uh, and, 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 and then transform those into imperishable, immortal bodies in order to finally and fully defeat death. Because this, this passage is about our victory over death and how is death finally defeated when death no longer afflicts us, right? I mean, let's face it, death was defeated on the cross, Right? I mean, I've often used this, this illustration before, the, the, the difference in World War II between D-Day and V-Day. Right? The, all the historians say, effectively, World War II was over when the Allied forces were successful on D-Day 
on storming the Normandy beach and establishing a foothold there in order to press their advantage against the Nazi forces. Effectively, that broke the back of the German forces. But when, when was V-Day? It was like one year later, right? A little over a year, maybe a little less than a year later. May, I think May of 45 was V-Day. What happened in that in-between in, in period there? A lot of fighting, right? A lot of fighting, but also a lot of backtracking of the Axis forces because they were being beaten back. So D-Day was the effective day of our victory, but Victory Day was the official day. It's the same thing in the Christian life. V-Day for us was the cross. When Christ was crucified on the cross and when he was resurrected, death was defeated. Satan was defeated. Sin was defeated. But it, we continue to battle it. Right? We continue to fight it. Until we're resurrected. Until we're resurrected in the last day and then we will then be able to say, death, where is your sting? We'll say, death, you are finally a defeated enemy. Okay, verses 51 through 53 now, a revealed mystery. So after giving us an incontrovertible truth, Paul now continues with a revealed mystery. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So the mystery essentially is this. Not everyone will die before the return of Christ. But more importantly, that those who remain alive will be transformed instantaneously. In other words, if the Lord will return now, those of us who are alive in Christ, we won't have to die first in order to be raised incorruptible, we will be instantaneously transformed, as Paul says here, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. So that is the mystery. But the point is that the return of Christ is imminent. We could talk about how the return of Christ is in imminent. And when he returns, as we see here in verse 23, if you remember from a few weeks back, when Christ returns, each one in his own order, Christ is the first fruits. After the, afterwards, those who are Christ at his coming, so the resurrection of the dead, right? Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead, and then when he returns at the end of the age, all those who are in Christ. So those who sleep will be raised incorruptible, and those who are alive will be changed. We, we, we will be changed. We see this in a couple of other passages. We've alluded to these in the past, but Philippians 3 Philippians 3, verse 21. I don't like it when they have a new verse starting in the middle of a sentence. That's just a pet peeve of mine. Because then it just forces me to go back and read where the sentence begins, which is verse 20. Where Paul there says at the end of chapter 3, for our citizenship is in heaven. See, in other words, you know... I love that verse because what it tells us is that we are, you know, to use the language of, of today's political uh, commentary, we, we are illegal aliens. Well, no, we're legal aliens, but we are resident aliens in this world, right? This world is not our home. 
We may, you know, you can look at your driver's license. It says, you know, you may have a Nebraska address. You may be a citizen of Nebraska, a citizen of the United States, but really our citizenship is in heaven because we were raised incorruptible with Christ. We were raised when, when Christ was raised from the dead. We, too, were raised, in a sense, from the dead. Our citizenship is in heaven, not here on earth, and we eagerly await for the Savior. So, you know, Paul will use the language in 2 Corinthians how we are ambassadors, right? What's an ambassador? An ambassador is an emissary of a foreign king in a foreign country to promote the, the ideals of your kingdom, right? So we are ambassadors in this earth. We are resident aliens. So we eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to return. And when he returns, verse 21, he will transform our lowly bodies that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So again, this idea that those who are alive when Christ returns will be transformed, our lowly bodies will be made into glorious bodies like his body. And I've alluded to this passage as well many times, 1 Thessalonians 4. Starting in verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. What's implied in there is that we who are alive will be caught up, will be transformed as well. And we're not going to be, trans, we're not going to be caught up in these bodies. We're going to be caught up in, in incorruptible bodies. But those who, who sleep will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. We will be transformed. And how is this transformation done? Well, Paul doesn't really give us a lot of details on it, but he does tell us how fast it'll be. It'll be instantaneous, right? He says, in a moment, that word there for moment is the word atomos, atom, right? And atom is the smallest uh, in you know the smallest unit you can think of. Now we think of atoms. We think of you know well you well you, you know if you took science class, well atoms could be broken down into you know neutrons and protons and electrons, and then those things can be broken down into quarks and other things and so on and so forth. So, but the concept of the atom was always that the atom was the smallest indivisible unit. It is the smallest thing you can think of, and that's what Paul says here. It's like look, our transformation will be in the smallest. Unit of time you can think of. What is that? Well, the twinkling of an eye would be one of them, right? You know, how, 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 how small can you divide a, a second? I don't know, you know. But it will be that fast. The twinkling of an eye, very fast. It will happen before you know it. And he also tells us when this will happen. It will happen at the last trumpet, the end of the age. When the last trumpet rings clear and true, then we will be changed just as the dead will be raised in Christ. Jesus talks about this in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, verse 31. 
the sound of the great trumpet, the angels, the holy angels, will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. John chapter 5 talks about it, how the voice of the Son of God will be heard and all the dead in their graves will rise. Some will go to, to everlasting peace and, and righteousness. Some will go to judgment. John 5, 25, Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and it now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And we already looked at 1 Thessalonians 4 in this. Now again, the last trumpet marks the end of the earthly kingdoms and the consummation of the kingdom of God. We looked at this. If you'd like, you can take your Bibles and turn to Revelation 11. We looked at this in our study of Revelation. This would have been some months ago. We looked at Revelation 11, 15 through 19. It's the trumpet um, cycle of judgments. And verses 15 through 19 speak of the seventh trumpet being sounded. So in Revelation 11, the seventh angel, verse 15, the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. So again, when the... When the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, that marks the end of the kingdoms of the earth. They are no more. They will now become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. Verse 16, And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry. Think of Psalm 2, how they raged against the Lord. And your wrath has come at the time of the dead that they should be judged, that you should be rewarded, sorry, that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings and noises and thunderings and earthquakes and great hail. So again, this kind of marking of the end of the age there. The last trumpet... And at that last trumpet, as Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15, at the last trumpet, we will be changed. We will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when the last trumpet sounds. That's when we will be made ready for the kingdom of God. It's like what John says in 1 John 3, verse 2, that we will, when we see him, when he is revealed... We will be like him, for we will see him as he is. We will see Christ. And note, too, there where he says, again, this idea in verse 53, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. It's a, I emphasize the word must there. It's a three-letter, little, teeny, tiny Greek word, dei, which means necessity. Necessity. This must happen, as I've been emphasizing so far through this lesson. This, the corruptible must put on incorruption. The mortal must put on immortality. We must, think of in a different context. This just popped into my head. I, in fact, I don't even know where, where it happens, but there's, there's a parable of the wedding feast, not the one in Matthew, but the one where um, 
wedding feast is held and no one comes to it, so then the, the master says, well, go gather all the, the, the people off the roads, and they come. And then there's one person there who's not wearing wedding clothes. Okay? It's a different context, but think about it. The reason why that person is not, uh, you know, he's eventually kicked out of the wedding is he's not appropriately attired. Now, in that sense, I think the context is saying, you know, you need to be attired in the righteousness of Christ, and I get that. But think about it, too. You know, we, in our current bodies, are not properly attired from the kingdom of God. We must be transformed. We must, in a sense, put on, and that word there means to clothe yourself with, put on immortality, put on incorruption. And then when that happens we see the glorious victory in verses 54 through 57. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then, at that moment, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So when this mystery is finally and fully revealed, then the victory is made clear. Then the victory is manifest. When we are transformed, then that, that, that mystery will be revealed and our victory will be made sure. And Paul says this revelation of the mystery is a fulfillment of some Old Testament prophecies here. Uh, he quotes Isaiah 25, 58 and verse 55. Not 58, sorry, 25, 8. He quotes Isaiah 25, verse 8 in verse 55 of this chapter. And in that, in that section there in Isaiah 24 through 27, it's, it's a series of oracles that Isaiah receives that sort of uh, show the, the final judgment. But you get this really nice picture in Isaiah 25, and I invite you, Uh, to turn there with me, Isaiah 25. Again, the the, the quote is from verse 8. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 of Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25 begins in verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and true. For you have made a city a ruin, a fortified city a ruin, a palace of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, the strong people will glorify you. The city of the terrible nations will fear you. For you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the blast of the terrible ones is a storm against the wall. You will reduce the noise of aliens as heat in a dry place, as heat in the shadow of a cloud. The song of the terrible ones will be diminished. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things, full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. And he will destroy on this mountain 
the surface of the covering cast over all people and he and the veil that is spread over all nations he will swallow up death forever and the lord god will wipe away tears from all faces the rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth for the lord has spoken that's why paul cites this verse because what he is talking about is that moment when the tears will be taken away, when death will be swallowed up, when death will be no more. You remember from Revelation chapter 20, when Christ there is in his white throne and things get tossed into the lake of fire, first, the, the first thing that happens is that it's said that, that death and Hades give up all the dead that are in them. And then when the judgment is made, death and Hades go into the lake of fire to be destroyed forevermore because Jesus Christ reigns forever and ever. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, uh, speaking about how Jesus Christ had to be made human, in Hebrews 2, verse 14, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood. And whenever you hear that phrase, flesh and blood, just think of, Normal, mortal, fleshly bodies, right? Bodies made for this age. Bodies formed out of the dust of the earth, if you will. So inasmuch as the children, that is us, have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise shared in 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 the same flesh and blood, that through death, his death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So when Christ took on this form, he took on this form for Several purposes, but one of which is to destroy death by his own death. In fact, there's an interesting book title. I've not read the book because John Owen is a hard guy to read. From He's a Puritan from the 1700s. But he wrote a book called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And I, I just love that title because the death of Christ spells out the death of death itself. Right? His, his death was the one that defeated death for all time. Back to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul then goes on to refer to Hosea 13, 14 in verse 55 as well. I'm not going to read that passage, but he just goes on. On the last day when the trumpet sounds, a huge victory cry will go forth as death and Hades are are finally defeated. Their power was neutralized at the cross, but ultimate victory happens at the end when Christ returns. I said this before. That's why I'm very careful when I say death is a normal part of life in a fallen world. I always add that because death was not a normal part of life before the fall. If anyone tells you there was death before the fall, they don't know anything. <laughs> okay? Death was not part of this world before the fall. Death was an unwanted intruder. Death came in through sin. Romans 5 talks about that. How Adam sinned, and through sin, death entered the world. Death is an unwanted intruder in God's very good creation. God wouldn't call it very good if it included death. right? If it included millions and billions of years of death and evolution and all that stuff, it would not have been called very good. It would have been called very messy. But death will finally be evicted from creation. When Christ returns, he will have his eviction notice served, and death itself will be cast into the lake of fire. And he says, death, where is your sting? That's why Paul quotes that from 
Hosea, where's your sting, death? Where's your victory, O grave? Verse 56, the sting of death is sin. Anybody here ever gotten stung by something? <laughs> I've never been stung, so that's a, uh, yeah. <laughs> sting, but I'm sure stingers hurt. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, we have bees in the city, too. <laughs> It's not like you go in the city. I mean, you, you would think with all the pollution and the crime, the bees were like, I'm out of here. I'm going to go somewhere safer. But uh, no. Uh, no, probably not. But sin has a sting. Okay, Sin is like an annoying bee or wasp with a stinger. And sin's sting is death. Right? That's why Paul will say in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Sin stings you and you die. When sin entered in the world, death followed after that, right? When Adam sinned, God said, in the day that you eat of the fruit, the tree that I told you not to eat, in other words, in the day that you sin, you will die. But here, the strength and power of, or this, this, in, in, the, in the final resurrection, when Christ returns, it'll be as if death has lost its sting. It'll be like a wasp without a stinger. You're not worried about wasps without stingers, right? <laughs> right? It'll be with a, a bug without a stinger. He also says that the, the power of sin or the strength of sin is found in the law, which is very interesting, too. And it underscores the fact that the law cannot save you, right? The law has no power to save you. The law tells you what you have to do. It tells you what sin is, but the, the law cannot give you a leg up and help you to, to, to get salvation. The law just tells you it's a mirror. It shows you what sin is. It shows you what the path is, but it can't help you get there, right? And, and, and the power, then, of course, of sin is the law, right? Because if you remember when we looked at Romans 7, right, Paul says he was enticed by the law. The law aroused within him all kinds of evil desires, Right? If you tell a kid, you know, don't step on the grass, what does the kid want to do? He wants to step on the grass all the more now because you told him not to. He wasn't probably even thinking about stepping on grass before you told him that. And that's why no one can find righteousness through the law. The law cannot save. It can only show us our sin. But then Paul in verse 57 praises God. He's got nothing left to say. What else is there to say? Thanks be to God. Who gives us the victory. It's not our victory. We don't win this victory, beloved. We do not win this victory. It is a victory that is given to us through Christ. It is Christ who has won the victory. It is Christ who has defeated death. It is Christ who has defeated sin. And then he invites us, by grace through faith, to share in that victory. We are united. We are victorious because we are united to him by grace through faith. And then finally, and I'm not going to take too much time in this, verse 58. I've, I've mentioned this verse many, many times before. It's like one of my favorite verses. Never started off as one of my favorite verses, but when you read it in context, it kind of, you kind of understand why, at least for me, it becomes much more, much more uh, poignant because what's the payoff? The big payoff here is in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. Those are words that just mean that you, you, are, you are anchored to the ground. You are rock solid, you are unable to be moved, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 
Earlier, it's interesting because he says what? If there's no resurrection, what is your faith? Vain. Your faith is vain. Your faith is empty, right? He says this earlier. If the dead do not rise, Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And then he says, the the conclusion then is, if there's no resurrection from the dead, what are we to do? Party it up. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. But there is a resurrection from the dead. And because there's a resurrection from the dead, then our labors are not pointless. Our labors are not in vain because of the resurrection. And it's interesting because you can think Sometimes it might feel that laboring in the Lord is, is pointless. You're like, I've, I've, you know, I've witnessed to this person multiple times. And just it's like, it's like BBs off of a brick wall. Nothing penetrates this person's mind. Or you, you, know, you labor in, a, in some kind of evangelistic effort. Or so, you know, you're, you're helping people. And it just doesn't seem like it, anything is going right. It doesn't seem, like, doesn't seem like anything is going the way you would like it to go. That's why we need to walk by faith and not by sight. Right? If you were to look at things around you, you'd be like, you would fall into despair. You walk by faith and you know that even if, you know, I mean, Jeremiah was told, go and preach the word. And Jeremiah's like, great, I'm going to go preach the word. And then God told Jeremiah, you're not going to have one single convert. And Jeremiah's like, what? <laughs> I'm going to labor all this way and I'm not going to have a single, God's like, no one's going to listen to you. They'll persecute you. They'll do all sorts of mean things to you. They'll lock you up. They'll throw you in a pit, a pit pit. <laughs> and, and nothing. It's like, but was his labor in vain? No, it was not in vain. He did what the Lord asked him to do. So what seemed like a victory for Satan in the garden when he tempted Adam, and what seemed like a victory for Satan again at the cross when he, when he managed to, to, to see the execution of the Son of God Actually, God himself turns into a great, momentous victory at the resurrection. And what is true now only in part, the fact that because we have been made alive and because Christ has broken the power of sin and death in our lives will be now realized in the last day when the presence of sin and death are finally removed from us for all time. So I'll just leave you with these few words at the end here. The gospel combats our hopelessness and gives us purpose to our daily endeavors. Again, remember, because of the resurrection of the dead, Paul concludes, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So I'll stop here. Next week, Lord willing, Short passage. We're only going to look at the first four verses of chapter 16. You're like, well, what are you going to say about that? Well, I'll probably add, throw some extra stuff in there too. <laughs> because this, this, is, this is the subject that every pastor loves to talk on. Giving. And by that I mean no pastor likes to talk about giving. <laughs> okay. Unless you're, unless you're in the middle of a big building project and we need to put a new roof on or something. Then you want to preach like 27-part messages on on giving, but uh, now the next passage talks about a, a collection, but we'll, we'll look at giving a little bit in context 